her every day, living for messy action. This is the Lifestyle Leadership Podcast for women who want to be the best version of themselves while making an impact. And who are willing to take messy and perfect action to get there. I'm Jordan. And I'm Dr. Tay. And we are here to guide and empower you to lead yourself every day. Let's dive into today's episode. Hi, y'all. We are back for another episode. This is one Jordan and I have a lot of behind-the-scenes conversations about, and we've been talking about making it an episode. And so that's what we're going to dive into today. We're going to talk about all things emotions. Yeah, so this has come up a few times, but it's just that line and the psychology behind allowing yourself to feel and giving yourself space. And you could also say this to help other people too and giving someone else space to feel something without allowing it to just like totally consume you and kind of run into this like negative spiral. So essentially what we're going to talk about today is how do I validate my feelings and allow myself to work through my feelings and also continue to live my life and not sabotage myself by living in those feelings. Is that the right way to put this? Yeah, I think that's a great way that, you know, there is this delicate balance. And so we're going to talk about the delicate balance and really viewing both sides of the argument, viewing both perspectives. And here's the thing, this episode is not meant to tell you how you should feel or how you should process We are going to talk about different strategies and you can start to do some self-exploration to see if these strategies could help you be able to move forward in processing your emotions effectively and in a way that is going to serve you. I think about certain situations in my life and things that I've struggled with, relationships I've struggled with. And it's like, it comes to this point where I can easily be consumed by a situation, something that was said, something that I wish I said differently, whatever. And like, no joke, I will lay awake at night thinking about it. I will drive in the car and think about it. I will, I mean, in your mind and body, your gut, there's a connection there. So it physically impacts the way that I am and the way that I feel and my anxiety levels. And, you know, I, I just sit in it. And anytime someone talks to me about it, it's a negative conversation. And so that's one of the kind of inspirations, I guess you could say behind having this conversation is I feel like we've all had a situation like that. So let's try and find tangible ways to deal with our and process our emotions in a healthy way. And then, you know, those tools to not be stuck in them. Yeah. And I also think that this episode is about building awareness, you know, but real quick, what you're describing right there is called rumination and it is a human experience. And I've said this before on the episode, and this is not something that I developed. Dr. Kristen Neff does a lot of self-compassion work and it comes from her, but Whatever all of these things we're talking about, all of these emotions, both positive and negative emotions, are part of the human experience. Sometimes we like to ridicule them. We like to try to make them disappear. We like to feel guilt and shame for them. Well, we might not like to. We just naturally do. Yeah. But, you know, it is part of the human experience. And so this conversation today also is intended to normalize that 
the brain thinks in this way for certain reasons, and that doesn't mean you have to remain stuck there. So again, two sides of the coin. It's like, how do you give yourself the ability to process through these emotions and work through them? And on the other side of the coin is how do you give yourself the self-compassion and allowing yourself to be human, you know, without feeling like you need to constantly fix your own emotions. Just as a reminder, anything shared on our episodes are not clinical advice. Please talk to a qualified mental health professional if you are needing more support. So that's a good segue into the topic of toxic positivity, which is kind of where this conversation, we're like, we need to do a podcast episode on this. I was on my stories talking about like, what is the difference between toxic positivity and being like, okay, you've thought about this. You've talked about it till you're blue in the face. Let's move on for now and maybe revisit it and give it space at a different time. And I was just kind of like having this dialogue of like, is that toxic positivity or is that helping yourself like not stay stuck? So what would you define as toxic positivity? I think it's a way, and we've talked about this on previous episodes, but it's a way to almost suppress your negative emotions, to be able to be like, I don't want to feel this right now. Or a lot of times why toxic positivity comes into play is there is a lot of shame around feeling these negative emotions. And so we're seeing this huge shift right now where it's like we're going to the opposite extreme, right? You have a negative emotion, combat it with a positive. And you literally see this all over social media. Also as kids, this is we heard it all the time, you know, don't worry, be happy. It's like, what? Mm -hmm. There is a middle ground between those. And sometimes the systemic brain, which is the part of the brain, it's not a physical part, but it's like a conceptual part. The part of the brain that thinks in all or nothing patterns, that it's either negative Mm -hmm. or you need to be positive. And so that I think is where toxic positivity comes in is it's like almost like squashing the negative feelings or the negative thoughts and thinking that that is going to be useful. But what we actually know about it is that it is counterproductive, right? It might make you feel better in the short term, but in the long term, you're literally suppressing your emotions that you truly need to feel. I actually heard an analogy the other day, and this was this actually came from the curriculum that I'm certified in as a mindset coach. And they were talking about this idea that this positive mental attitude or toxic positivity, what it's like is like putting new coats of paint on a rotting fence right? Mm -hmm. It's making it look pretty, but it doesn't actually fix the core cruel difficulties. And you're still going to get rotting. You might slow the rotting process down because that part isn't exposed to the elements. It's going to maybe slow it down, but at the core, you still don't have that, you know, solid structure. And so toxic positivity doesn't end up fixing the problem. It just makes the problem look pretty. So you and I have talked behind the scenes a lot about gratitude. I'm very big on how gratitude does rewire your brain, but we've also talked about gratitude can also be, there's a line there, right? Yes. Starting your morning with gratitude, which is what I like to do is important because it sets your brain off 
looking for good. But if I was in the middle of a sore moment and having a hard moment and I said, well, I shouldn't feel this way because I have so much to be grateful for. That's really not how gratitude is supposed to be practiced. That kind of turns into toxic positivity. And so gratitude used in the right way can actually be a part of rebuilding that fence and like rewiring the foundation. So I think what you're describing is the difference between proactive gratitude and reactive gratitude. Mm, That's good. Yeah. And I love thinking about feelings in this way. Are you doing it proactively or are you doing it reactively? And sometimes we need to do things reactively, but reactive gratitude is actually not serving. Yeah. It's not gratitude. It's like a band-aid. It's a band-aid, right? Another analogy actually that came up in this, which is so fascinating to think about is like when you go to the dentist, you know, if you have a cavity or something, you're getting lidocaine and what lidocaine is used for is to numb the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of times when we're using reactive gratitude, we're just trying to numb the situation, right? We're just trying to feel better in that moment. And so that is very, very different than proactive gratitude where you're starting your morning off or even bringing the gratitude towards this idea of, okay, yes, this is painful. You're allowing yourself to feel the pain, but that pain is also bringing you clarity. It's helping you Mm -hmm. to understand your life more accurately. And so there's ways that we can use gratitude that isn't intended to numb. And I think that's where the reactive gratitude gets to be a little bit of a slippery slope. I think back to high school, like my friend and I talk about this all the time. This actually happened to me. I was having a hard day I remember I got in a fight with my dad. And for me, that was always like really hard for me. It was about something silly back then, of course, but I was having a hard morning and I was a news team. So I had to go to school in front of live camera and be like, oh, Pledge of Allegiance, upcoming news and like whatever. But I was in like a bad mood. It was beautiful out. I had gotten Chick-fil-A because I was running late or whatever, didn't eat breakfast. And my friend I had two friends and one of them was sitting with me. And one of them said this to me, what do you have to be upset about today? You have Chick-fil-A, it's sunny out. Like, why are you in a bad mood? And the other girl and I just like looked at each other with like this fury because like the thought that sunshine and Chick-fil-A could mask a situation that I was genuinely upset about is like so preposterous. And that's just like a very light example of when I think about toxic positivity, it's kind of like that. Well, I don't have a right to be upset right now. Like what, what do I need to be upset? There's people starving, you know, there's people out there that have it way worse than I have it. When in reality, we can hold space for our emotion. And like you said, and be grateful, but it doesn't have to be like a pendulum swing of like either or. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it goes on the opposite side too. Don't hear us as we're saying this, that you should be dwelling in the negative, you know, just like ruminating on everything that has gone wrong either and just staying stuck there. You can hold space for your emotions and you still can go about your day and be productive. It's all about the approach that you do Mm -hmm. it. But I will say, and this is something I have no problem sharing openly that I'm even learning through being in therapy myself is that when we actually give ourselves permission to feel the emotions, they dissipate so much more quickly. It is like 
mind-blowing to me. Like things in the past that I might've gotten really stuck on, I didn't realize I was getting stuck on them because what I was actually trying to do was fix the emotion, to make the emotion disappear. And whether that's with toxic positivity or whether that's like a different approach, there's so many different approaches that we try to fix our emotions. I was not one that went to the toxic positivity because I think I was so hyper aware of it. But here's another example of this, which could be interpreted as toxic positivity. It's like, okay, I have this pain right now. There's a lesson. This is meant to be. I'm meant to learn something from it. And that was me trying to fix the negative feelings, right? And give them some purpose versus just actually allowing myself to be like, I'm really pissed off right now, or I'm really disappointed right now, or I'm feeling a lot of guilt and shame right now, whatever it is, by trying to give it some meaning, that was a way that I often tried to fix, or I'd constantly cognitively restructure. But what I didn't realize is sometimes that cognitive restructuring, and what I mean by that is shifting from negative thoughts and not even to positive thoughts. That's not really what cognitive restructuring it is. It's shifting to more realistic thoughts. I didn't realize that sometimes in this process, I was still suppressing my emotions. And so it's one of those things that's so hard to describe, but I can say from a firsthand experience that when we give ourselves permission to truly feel It is crazy how much more quickly we go through that emotional process than trying to fix it. And what you're doing is you're kind of adding road bumps in with trying to fix it. And so it actually delays the process, but we think we're we're fixing it in the process that it's just, there's going to be some magical solution. Hear this loud and clear. The only magical solution to your feelings, to your emotions is feeling them. I think a common narrative for me is like, it's not productive to feel this right now, which we know is, is not the right way to handle it, but also just being able to name them. Because I feel like for some people, it's not necessarily that they're suppressing their emotions. It's that we don't know how to name them. This is going to sound really corny. Okay. I'm like the queen of corny. If you have not figured that out by now, the other day I said something to my husband along the lines of like, we have all these things that we say, these phrases that are with the times in my feels, I'm just concerned about all the things there are more, you know, but I started to wonder, like, is that contributing to us literally not being able to talk about how we feel because we just use these blanket popular statements? Because then I started thinking, well, what are all the things? What am I in my feels about? You know, like, what does that actually mean? Or like, I'm just hanging on or, you know what I'm saying? Like there are these things that we say, and I feel like we're in a society right now where we don't really know how to name our emotions. I mean, especially men or the men in my life, at least, you know, like I just think about the interactions that I have with my husband and it's just interesting. So if you're listening to this, maybe you're like, I'm not suppressing my emotion. I would never like, I would never say like, you know, I can't feel this right now. Maybe ask yourself, are you able to name your emotions? Are you able to even understand like right now, the reason I'm angry is because I'm disappointed that that didn't work out the way that I like expected it to. Yeah. And anger is a really fascinating one because almost always there's way more complexity to anger. Mm -hmm. People are, here's the thing that I've realized that anger feels more socially acceptable to talk about than things like shame or grief or sadness or disappointment, right? It feels Mm -hmm. more normal, especially if we're talking, you know, 
of men, but I think this is really true of women Yeah, too, is we feel more comfortable saying, Hey, I'm really mad about this or frustrated or irritated. Some of those, what we call primary emotions, but a lot of times what comes from those is that is just a blanket statement to protecting our own vulnerabilities of really letting people in. And this sounds weird, but sometimes the person we're most fearful to let into our emotions is ourself because it means that it's real if we let ourselves in. And so it presents itself as anger, as frustration, stomping around, slamming doors, when really what you want to say is you really hurt me in this moment. Yeah. Or I'm really pissed off right now because I feel a lot of shame for that shitty thing that I said. Yeah. But it feels way easier being like, oh, why did she even have to say that? So then I wouldn't have said this, right? Right. Like really what you're feeling deep down is the shame that those words even came out of your mouth. That's so powerful. Let me say this too. I think it's really interesting working with kids primarily. We actually don't teach them when we're teaching effective emotion regulation. We actually don't teach them naming of emotions. I see this actually with parents of young kids. Like they're constantly like, well, I got to teach my kids how to name their emotions. It's not that it's a bad thing, but really what we need at least initially and what's easier for kids' brains to understand is intensity of emotions. And so when I'm working, I primarily work with autistic youth. When I'm working with them on effective emotion regulation, what we're actually working on is building awareness over that intensity. I hear a lot like, oh, my autistic child goes from zero to a hundred instantaneously. And what we found is that's actually not true. There's a lot of indicators before that. We're just missing them. And sometimes we can get stuck in the labeling. So I share this because if you're someone who feels like you can't accurately label your emotions, what I'd encourage you to do is start to become aware of your intensity on a thermometer. Where are you? Because sometimes we just say we're angry, but it could just be a low level of irritation. Maybe you're like a three out of 10 versus like you are absolutely so pissed off. You've never been more mad in your life. Like that's a 10 out of 10. And those are two very, very different experiences. And so I would say become more aware of your intensity first, if you do have problems with recognizing your emotions. The other thing is, and this is going to sound strange, but slow down enough to actually be like, okay, even if I don't understand my feeling right now, where am I noticing it? You know, mm-hmm. am I clenching my hands? Am, am I feeling nauseous? Am I f- feeling a knot in my throat? Am I noticing that my my breathing is elevated? Pay attention to your physical body cueing as well. And that is actually a way by doing that in and of itself, you're building your awareness, but you're also allowing that emotion to be there. You got to be careful. You don't want to be like, oh, I'm breathing so fast right now. Stop doing that. It's just like, oh, I'm breathing so fast right now. That's really connected to my emotion. Hmm. And just like sit with it. That's part of the effective process of all of it. I'd love to talk about sitting with it and holding space for it because I think I've heard that a lot of times and it wasn't until recently I was able to kind of hold space and understand what that means. What would you advise someone who doesn't really know how to do that and feels like they're constantly ruminating is the word that you've used. What does holding space even look like? Well, I want to toss that back to you. What have you recently kind of uncovered? 
Yeah. So I had a situation that was literally just eating my entire day, night joy. And it's like, you know, human, like Taylor said, but miserable. And so I actually started to go on walks without headphones. And I would be like, I am upset about this, but I also need to be here. You don't always have the opportunity to like be aware and sit with like your feelings right where you are. And when you are, you know, I was working, I had small kids. Um, I would go on walks and I would be like, I'm going to go on a 20 minute walk and allow myself to just do nothing, but think this through. But when I'm done with that walk, I need to have peace about where I've ended and then kind of like be able to shift back, you know? So that's just the skill that I, the, the tool, I guess that I have used. And, and that is literally one of the most effective things you can do creating space. Sometimes people are like, what does that mean? It literally means like it is an appointment with yourself mm-hmm. on your calendar. Like that's what it is, right? Again, it doesn't have to be reactive. Like I feel this way. I need to cancel the rest of my calendar. You might have to suppress temporarily and temporary suppression is not a bad thing. We're not trying to make suppression the enemy here. The reason biologically we can suppress our emotions is because it was adaptive at one point, right? For example, like Fight or flight is a natural reaction, but literally way back when you're scared, you see an animal, you can't stop in that moment and be like, okay, I'm going to hold space for myself right now, right? Right. But you're going to die, literally. (laughs) So some of it's like, okay, what do I need to do right now? And you take action. But then later you might reflect on, wow, that was really scary. And like allowing yourself to process. So it's not saying clear your calendar, but Put it in your calendar, make a time. We know from the anxiety, like research literature, super, super well-studied construct is that this idea of worry time is highly, highly effective where you give yourself a set amount of time to worry, to give yourself that permission to worry. And so there's Mm. so much power in adapting that. It doesn't just have to be worry. It can be sadness. You give yourself permission to cry. You give yourself permission to feel really angry. You give yourself permission to feel the shame, feel the guilt, whatever it is. I bring up shame and guilt because they're not often things we talk about, but they are one of the most prevalent emotions. But anyway, my point is giving yourself actual time and space to feel it. And the difference between continuing to feel and staying stuck in that emotion is when you get back from your walk, Jordan, you're packaging it up and saying, okay, it's over right now. I need to get back. And that mm-hmm. same process is true regardless of what it looks like, whether it's laying in your bed, taking a shower, going on a drive, whether it's walking, whether it's journaling, whether it's meditating, you decide what that looks like for you, but set a time limit to it. That's good. I've seen a lot of people too. They've had like a journal session at night, like 10 minutes where they just, it's like reflective. So often I think we can have that morning quiet time and create our morning to-do list and set ourselves up for the day. But we often don't weave into our routine those ends and like reflect. And so that might be a good like pre-built in time where you're like doing the dishes. I can't really feel, I can feel it, but you know, I can't really act on this and kind of like deconstruct this right now. But I have that 10 minutes before I go to bed where I can't wait until I can just like write this out and reflect on what I was feeling and why. But those are all really good tools to use when you feel like you need to give yourself 
space. Yeah, it is giving yourself that time and space. And so a couple tips then on the other side of this, if you're like, right, but I can't shut my brain off. Some of this, keeping in mind that it's a habit, it's a practice, it's not going to be I don't know why, what's up with me and talking about magical solutions today, but it's the word that keeps coming up. It's not going to be some magical solution that all of a sudden you implement this and it's going to fix everything for you. But a couple thoughts on this is actually, if you notice it creeping into other areas, look up Dr. Kristen Neff. She talks a lot about self-compassion, but I love this exercise. This is from her. Just In that moment, like if you're feeling it intensely and you know you don't have the time and space then is taking a breath in and you say, this is a moment of, and whatever emotion comes to mind, breathing out that emotion. So let's just pick something like, you know, stress. Well, you can even say this is a moment of stress. Stress is a part of life. It is part of the human condition. Breathing in right now, may I be kind to myself breathing out. May I give myself the compassion I need. And so that's such an easy way to attend the emotion when you don't have that dedicated space and time. Give yourself the compassion that this is coming up for you. You know, I think so often we are so hard on ourselves. We think everyone else has their shit together, that no one else is feeling negative emotions. And yet, If we actually slow down enough and pay attention, there's lots of negative emotions floating around because it is part of the human experience. So don't be afraid to give yourself that self-compassion on that feeling side. And then on the thought side, when you find yourself, we've talked about rumination, which is actually thinking about the past and replaying it. And then we also have catastrophization, which is a lot of worry thoughts, thinking into the future, lots of what ifs, all of that. We typically see people are either stuck in the past or stuck in the future. Literally, and this is something, again, that comes from my coaching certification. It's called the tomahawk, which is literally you're going to chop your thoughts and you're not going to be able to see me, but like you're going to bring your hand up and bring it down and say, not going there right now. Mm-hmm. And you're you're chopping that off and then you're redirecting yourself to something productive because often what we find is that rumination and catastrophization end up like really interfering with what we need to get done. You were describing that at the start of this episode, Jordan, where it was like you couldn't even sleep. Mm-hmm. And so you might most likely one time is not going to be enough. You're going to have to keep chopping your thoughts and say, not going there right now. The other thing that I love is being able to say to yourself, I have time for myself to think about this later today at mm-hmm. X time. That's when I'm going to think through this and really allow my thoughts and feelings to come up. This is all very internal to our thoughts. How could we apply this concept into what we speak externally? So like you're in a conversation with someone and you continue to gripe about the same thing over and over again. And like, I think we, maybe we can't all agree, but at least in my experience, it's like I gripe and it feels great in the moment. But then when I'm on my drive home, I'm like, God, did I just really rattle off all of those complaints, you know? So is it kind of like a thoughts become actions type of thing? So when we allow ourselves to really practice this as a thought pattern, maybe we will not continuously spew off those negative complaints so naturally, I guess. 
Yeah. I mean, one thought that came to mind for me, and you have to get this agreement ahead of time before it starts, but like, why not say to your friends or your family being like, okay, I need times to vent and venting feels good, but I don't want to hijack our entire get together. What do we all think about if we have a short venting session, we'll set a timer, say for 20 minutes, and then we all agree collectively, we're going to move on. We're going to focus on it, other things because so many times we're getting together with family or friends for it to be restorative and venting mm-hmm. in the moment feels good, but it's not restorative. And I think if you can maybe apply that worry time to your interactions, but do it proactively. What I'm going to warn you, you cannot be like, okay, let's cut this off. Like in the middle of someone venting. Yeah. That's just going to piss them off. They're going to feel really unseen and unheard in that moment. And so I think that becomes some of it. The other thing is sometimes the best thing we can do for someone is simply just listen to understand, not listen yeah. to respond. And I think we hop into this listen to respond mode a lot. But create that space for them that if they're doing it, that you truly are trying to understand where they're coming from. And then you can make that transition period. And I love the idea of asking for permission, like, hey, would you be open to some advice right now? But that advice doesn't come until you help them feel seen and heard in that moment. Because one of the the most challenging things as a society is that we want to fix things. And a lot of times Mm. we can't fix these things, right? And even if we fixed it internally in ourselves, I'm learning this as someone who, you know, is in the helping field. Even if I have seen my own progress and I know something works until someone else buys into it and is ready to change we can't project it onto them. Yeah. They'd actually probably be more closed off to it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm going to say that the internal practice, I think is the most important thing um, that you can do with yourself. And so here's a d- question, like what's the difference then between venting with your friends and going to a therapist, right? It, it's an interesting thought, but a lot of times a therapist is going to be more unattached to the situation. They're not going to know all the people in your life the way like your friends or family are. They're not going to be taking necessarily your side. It's not about taking sides. It's about helping someone to facilitate through that process. But I think the biggest thing I think about my therapist, what she says to me is she will stop me. She can see me getting into a really cognitive mode and she'll say, time out, time out. Where are you feeling it in your body right now? Oh, yeah. And it's a practice dropping into my body and it stops all of those thoughts. So that might be another strategy you do for yourself is Mm -hmm. when you find yourself in this pattern of just like constant thoughts, right? Where am I feeling this in my body right now? And what's really, really cool too is, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing this with your friends or your family, like your adult family, at least not initially until you kind of master it, but you can do this with your kids. And instead of asking them where they feel it in their body, you can say, oh, I noticed my chest getting tight and model this for them, which is also teaching effective emotion regulation to them as well. By you talking about emotions, you are normalizing it. So good. 
so many good points here. And we hope that this helps you guys. Like Taylor said, at the beginning of this, these are human things. This is a part of the human experience. And we just really wanted to have a conversation today about how can we honor this part of the human experience and allow ourselves to be human and experience these feelings, but also allow ourselves to live. It's so important because so often I feel captive. You know, and one of the biggest things that has helped me lately is I can worry about this once or I can worry about it 10 times, which one would I rather do? And so it's like, I can stress once, or I can also stress on the way to daycare pickup and on the way home. And then that affects my mood, you know? So it's like, no, I'm like the tomahawk chop. I'm like, I am not doing this. I'm, I'm not required to be stressed about this at the moment. I will give it space. I literally have it marked on my calendar when I'm going to work on it or reflect on it, et cetera. Yeah. I think before we hit record, we were talking about something, same concept, but you said something about like, I can either worry about it now and in the future, or I can yeah. just worry about it in the future. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. Meaning when you struggle with this, that hits home for you because you're just like, you know, Taylor always says that joy lives in the present. And so it's like, by worrying about it right now, I can't be joyful. And even as something like in my workouts, I'll find myself like, don't even know what resistance I'm on. Don't even know where the instructor is. Cause my brain's off in a conversation that I had 10 months ago, you know, and that's so counterproductive. I have a question. So we all lean one way or another, you know, most of us are not fully present focused because it's a practice. It's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And even when I'm trying to do it, I tend to lean more towards thinking about the future and more on that catastrophization Mm -hmm. side. What side do you think you, that past the room? My husband's more the future. I even said to him the other day, we were sitting down having coffee in the morning and he's like, do you want to buy a chair for our blah, blah, blah? Should we look at, I'm like, dude, I said, when you woke up this morning, can you just look around you and be grateful for the house you have and spend 10 minutes not thinking about things you need to do to it or add to it? Whereas I am like, do you think that they thought I was X, Y, and Z when I said that? Why didn't I respond this certain way? Why did I let her say that to me? I mean, I go on and on about what happened in the past. And when- it, the future is one thing. Cause you might actually get there the past. She came and she gone. Like we, there's nothing you can do about it now. So that's, what's the most frustrating to me is I'm like, I am wasting this time. Yeah, totally. And the one thing else that I, I want to say about this topic is here's the thing. There is a fine line between all of this. Like today we talked about feeling your feelings versus when does it go into rumination or catastrophization, right? It's like, when is feeling your feelings too much that it starts to slip back to that? Or even like toxic positivity. When is it toxic positivity versus gratitude or toxic positivity versus, you know, effectively cognitively restructuring your thoughts. And The thing is, is that we all have our own fine line. You got to be willing to explore, to figure out where your fine line is. Like it's not this cut and dry thing. And I used to tossle with this in my mind where I'm like, okay, but where is the line? And what I started to realize is it's so unique to each person. And so sometimes like Okay, Jordan, you're describing like recapping, like there might be part of that process that's cathartic for you that allows the feelings to come up versus for someone like me or someone like your husband, it kind of might be like, why are we talking about this? Talking about it makes me more angry. And 
again, you want to feel that anger and explore that anger and all of that. But then sometimes it's like, no, it's not productive right now for me to feel those feelings. So it's an individual line that you do need to explore. But I I hope a takeaway from this episode is you're just more aware about Mm -hmm. some of these processes so that you can reflect on them. Yeah, absolutely. We are almost done with this episode, but we want to leave you with tangible steps to apply this. We are all about taking messy action, and we would encourage you to embrace that with us. Here's this week's takeaway. So for this week's messy action, we would love to encourage you guys to hold space in a routine manner. So whether that's daily or weekly, whether you're going to plan a walk, literally schedule it into your calendar, whether you're going to start taking those 10 minutes in the evenings or mornings to journal and reflect, but that sets you up so that you know I can rely on that space when I can't rely on it, like in the moment, cooking dinner, kids crazy or whatever it is for you. And it's okay. It can be once a week to start. It's almost like scheduling a date with yourself. And then also don't be afraid that if something comes up in the moment, just say to yourself more of a conscious practice of, okay, when am I going to process this Mm -hmm. versus working with moms? It's so easy just to just skirt past it. But then you put your head down on the pillow at night and everything comes out. And it's like, if you can proactively create some space before your head goes down on the pillow to be able to process through this. I mean, there's a huge link between all of this and your sleep. So just something to keep in mind. And we have a special announcement coming for the next episode. So make sure you stay tuned. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to share on social media. This is such an impactful concept and topic that we're excited that we finally been able to share. So make sure you share it to help someone else. And we will see y'all next week. Bye y'all. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. We love when you share your imperfect, but impactful progress with us on social media. We've linked our Instagram leadher.everyday in the show notes so you can tag us. Make sure you don't miss the next episode. Hit subscribe to stay up to date. See you next time.